0: you want to pull out that outline that you got when you came in, we're in a series, we're talking about, well, actually kind of some of the principles from Apollo, even though we don't have the Saturn V, we're talking about Apollo and how those principles play or in line with scripture. You know, as I was preparing, I was thinking about all that's going on in our world right now. It's a crazy time to be alive, isn't it? I mean, from the wars that are happening in the Middle East, to the, to the murders that take place in Chicago, to the riots in Charlotte, the election, I mean, there's just a lot of crazy things going on. But when you look at history, especially around the, the moon, uh, moon project, or Apollo, Mercury, and Gemini, you know, there's a lot of things that are very similar. You know, the, the Russians did something that freaked everybody out in 1957, in October. They set up a satellite. It wasn't very big. I have a picture of it here. Just a piece of metal, a few legs. couldn't do anything other than beep. Beep, beep, beep. But it was in Earth's orbit. So that meant that it went right over the United States. And as a result, it freaked everybody out because the thought was is the Russians could put that in space. What if next time it was a nuclear weapon? I was talking to uh, an older lady who was a senior in high school when Sputnik went up in to orbit. And she said that after that happened, everybody freaked out and they closed down the school for a week to rearrange the curriculum. And she said when they came back to school, there was no longer music, there was no longer drama, there was no longer physical education. And in its place was science and math because they wanted to figure out a way to catch up with what the Russians were doing. Now, the 1960s and the early 70s, like I said, were crazy times. Let me just share with you a, l- a few of the things that were going on. In 1960, In Greensboro, North Carolina, four black students went to a Woolworth. Anybody ever been to a Woolworth? They went to the food counter, and they would let them stay at the counter, but they wouldn't serve them. And as a result, it sparked several nonviolent marches throughout the country. And six months later, those same four people not only got to sit at the counter, but they were also served. It was in the 1960s that so much of the civil rights movement had its Uh, beginning had its birth uh, and much of its influence. In 1961, John F. Kennedy became the 35th president of the United States. Listen to what he said. This This is what President Kennedy did. He advised all prudent families to have a bomb shelter. So you can imagine how much fear was in our country when the president says everybody needs to have a bomb shelter so that if the Russians send a nuclear weapon, you have some place to go. Sounds a lot like 2016 when we're scared to death of what the terrorist might do. And uh, we need to be watching and reporting and doing all these. Sounds very, very similar. Uh, also, it's when the Vietnam War officially began in 1961. The first Americans went to Saigon in helicopters and 400 personnel. Something a little bit different. Barbie got a boyfriend in 1961. Anybody know what Barbie's boyfriend's name was? Yeah, it was Ken. In 1962, a spy plane flew over the island of Cuba. They saw that the Russians had moved in missiles and they were pointed at the United States and the the Cuban Missile Crisis began. And there was this fear, again, of nuclear war between two superpowers. In 1963, John F. Kennedy was killed, assassinated. In 1965, you had the Freedom March that went from Selma to Montgomery, Alabama. You also had 34 people that were killed in the Watts Riots. In 1966, the London Evening Standard did an interview with one of the Beatles. Any of you like the the Beatles music? Um, They did an interview. They talked to John Lennon, and here's what he said. He said, we, the Beatles, are more popular than Jesus now. And as a result, that created some uproar. And uh, also it was in 1966 that Anton LaVey began a formal uh, satanic church in, in San Francisco. In 1968, Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated at the Lorraine Motel in Memphis, Tennessee. After that, in many of the larger cities, there, was, uh, there were riots. Bobby Kennedy J, uh, John F. Kennedy's brother was killed in 1968. And then in 1969, Charles Manson and his people, he was a cult leader, and he went to Sharon Tate's home, Roman Polanski's wife, and she had a few people over. They killed them all, as well as some other folks on the other side of Los Angeles County. And it's just a crazy time. Just so many things happening. Also, in 1969, when Neil Armstrong stepped on the moon, remember what he said? One small step, kind man. One giant. Uh, you guys don't know what he said. I thought it was a famous saying. Uh, it's, anyways, that happened in July of 1969. It was the accomplishment, you know, that they had been working towards. The 1960s, also when the sexual revolution began. Woo! All right? In uh, the 1960s. And now, with the sexual revolution came, of course, the beginnings of the AIDS epidemic that we experienced in the 1980s. It also was the beginnings of abortion becoming legal in 1973. And you could even say that it was the beginning of the breakdown of the family. So when you think about all this going on in our culture, you think about racial uh, racial tension, you think about political craziness, you think about wars, you think about uh, disease, all this stuff was happening. And it sounds a lot like the day in which we live in two thousand. In 16, we have wars all over the world. We have political tension. We have racial tension. We have disease. We have the fear of terrorism. I mean, just a lot of the same things are happening. Now, President Kennedy wanted, uh, wanted the United States. He wanted us. He wanted the people to reach for something beyond their own problems. He didn't want them to get caught up and bogged down in all these things that were happening and to reach for something that was bigger than them. Something that could only be accomplished if we worked together. And what he wanted us to reach for, of course, was the moon. And he gave his famous speech when he got both the the House and the Senate together for the state of the nation. And here's what he said. He said, I believe that this nation should commit itself to achieving the goal before the decade is out of landing a man on the moon and returning him safely to earth. No single space product uh, project in this period will be more impressive to mankind or more important in long-range exploration of space. And none will be so difficult or expensive to accomplish. And that's, that's uh, admirable that he says just right out, nothing's going to cost more money and nothing is going to be more difficult. Now, you know, as I was preparing for this series, I was thinking about all the things that were going on in our world in the 1960s, but all the things that were happening with the Apollo and the Mercury and the Gemini space projects. I thought, you know what? We, in 2016, need a vision that's bigger than you and bigger than me. We need something to reach for that's bigger than just you starting your own business or you graduating from college or you becoming rich and famous. Or you getting in shape and becoming more healthy. We need something that can only be accomplished if you and I work together. We need something that's bigger. Bigger than what one person can achieve alone. Something that is going to be costly. Something that is going to take sacrifice. And the, the thing is, is, the scripture gives us just such a vision. It gives us a great vision, a vision that can do something about the, the murders and the violence in Chicago, a vision that can do something about racial inequality, a vision that can do something about poverty and hunger, a vision that can do something about our broken families and the challenges that we face, a vision bigger than you and me, a great vision. And in, in the scripture, some even refer to it as the great Commission. It's found in Matthew chapter 28. Look at what he says. He says, Then the 11 disciples left Galilee. Now remember what's going on. Jesus came on that first Christmas. He lived for about 30 years and then he began his ministry. He ministered for about three. Then he was put on a tree. He died. He was buried. On the third day he resurrected. And when the ladies came to check out the tomb, the angel said, Hey, Go tell the boys, go tell the disciples that Jesus will meet them in Galilee. Jesus actually showed up and told the ladies as well. So they went and when, uh, where Jesus had told them to go. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some of them what? Doubted. That's pretty interesting. We'll come back to that. It says Jesus came and he told his disciples. He says, I've been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I have given you. And be sure of this, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Now, the part you might underline is he says, teach the dis-, whoops. teach the disciples to what? Obey and then circle this all the commands. Well what are all the commands? If we have this vision that we that's bigger than you and it's bigger than me, a vision that can actually change the world, that can do something about all that's going on as opposed to you and I hoping that somehow some way somebody else will fix the problem. That it's somebody else's responsibility. That it is somebody else's fault. If there is a vision that together we can do something, then what, what does it mean to obey all the commands? Because there are a lot of them if you read the New Testament. Well, good thing is, is they asked Jesus the same question. They said, Jesus, we need you to prioritize these commands. There's a lot of different commands between the Old Testament uh, text or scriptures and the New Testament. And so Jesus did that. He said, let me prioritize them for you. Let me tell you where or uh, to start. So Jesus replied, the question. Which is most important? Where do we start? You must love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is what? The first and greatest. So Jesus just, he just tells you, hey, this is number one and this is most important. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind. Some of the gospel writers then throw in strength as well. Love the Lord your God. Secondly, now God didn't have to give us a second one, but he does. Says here, here here's the second one is that you are to equal uh, equally as important love your neighbor as yourself so what are the commands well the first one is to love God and that what he says love God your heart your soul your mind and your strength but'm I'm a, I'm a I tend to be inquisitive. You can ask Steph. She gets frustrated with me. Doesn't matter if it's the person picking up our trash or the person hooking up our cable or the cashier at the grocery store. I always have a million questions. And, and, and so, again, my question is what does it mean to love God? Does it mean to come to church? Does it mean to raise your hands and worship? Does it mean to have a Bible? I mean, what does it? If it has the capacity to do something about the craziness of our world, then I want to know what what does it mean to love God? When we look at the Scripture, it means to love God means to die to self. It means to die to my selfishness. It, It means to turn. Right to turn towards God and to turn from those things that destroy our lives, those things that destroy our families, those things that destroy our culture, those things that destroy our peace, our joy, our happiness. We, we have to turn from those things in which, that which are destructive and turn towards God. He, let me give you the Bible word. Here's the Bible word. The Bible word is the word Holy. To love God means to live a holy life. The Bible says we are to be holy as he is holy. So what does that mean? Is that You know, he's not talking about the genes that are popular today. What does it mean to be holy? Well, the word holy literally means separated. So we, to, to love God means to, to separate. Well, what are we to separate from? We are to separate from the pull of our skin and the pull of our culture. And when I say our culture, I'm talking about those attitudes and those mindsets, those beliefs that are creating all the things that we see today. The violence that we see in Chicago is a result of what people believe. Because we act upon what we believe and therefore deal with consequences of what we believe. So if I'm going to love God, then I have to be holy or I have to be separated. So I have to separate myself from those uh, pulls, I have to separate myself from those beliefs that are creating all the pain, the hunger, the uh, unequalness of uh, racial, uh, racial relations, the, uh, the, the, the anger, the uh, violence. All these things that we see, fear and worry, is to turn away from them and is to turn, is to, turn to him. And it's also to separate myself from those things within me that lead to destruction. Those desires that I have to do what I want, when I want, how I want. See, isn't there a tendency to believe that you are the one person who can deal with destructive desires and not be destroyed? I mean, the husband or wife who has an affair really believes that somehow they deserve it. Because they've been mistreated by their spouse or they've been miserable for years or that person doesn't care. And they also believe that they can enter into this uh, affair and not hurt their spouse or not destroy their children. They believe that they are the one exception to destruction. And so what God comes on and God says, listen, you were created to actually change this world. You can do something about what's happening. It is within our capacity, but we have to reach outside of ourselves. See, being a good parent is about more than just going to your kid's ballgame. God's called you to more than that. God has called you and I to create an environment in which our children can grow up that doesn't pull them into the destructiveness of violence and anger um, with one another. And that's what I want to challenge you to do today. I don't want to just challenge you to show up at your kid's ball game. That's awesome. That's great. Go cheer them on and celebrate when they hit a home run. But as parents in 2016, as people in 2016, you have a much greater opportunity to do something of significance. But in order to do that, we have to love God and we have to love people. It's one action the act of love. But it has two objects. It has God and the world. Now, in 1959, seven men were introduced as the United States astronauts to compete with the Russians. They started with the Mercury program. And here's what it was said about these men. It was said that they had the right stuff. Maybe you saw the movie. It came out a few decades ago talked about these seven men. And it talked about how they had the right stuff. Their names, the seven Mercury astronauts, were Scott Carpenter, Gordon Cooper, John Glenn, Gus Grissom, Wally Schirra, Alan Shepard, Deke Slayton. But what is the right stuff? What is it that they had that you and I need to do something in 2016? To reach, you might say, that spiritual moon. Oh, there's three that I want to give you real quick today, all right? Here's the first one. A courage willing to take risk. A courage. All seven of these men and the astronauts that would join them join them in the coming years all had courage. They had courage that takes risk. Courage is not the absence of fear. But it's moving forward in the presence of fear. Sometimes we think that courage waits to, to, to fear abates, you know, till it's gone. Because fear has a tendency to paralyze us. Anybody, when somebody jumps out, your first instinct is to freeze. You know, you just kind of freeze. Or for some of us, we run, right? Woo, ah! Others of us, we punch. All right? Somebody jumps out, your first instinct, bam. All right? But, but courage... It is not allowing what I feel to keep me from what I believe. Yes, there are risks that are involved in reaching the moon for these men. Gus Grissom was the second astronaut to go into space. He didn't orbit Earth. He was only up there for about 15 minutes. And then he was in a capsule similar to this, much smaller. This is an Apollo capsule. It's made for three men. He was in a mercury capsule, which was made for one. But it came down, right? There's parachutes. It landed in the Atlantic Ocean. And the way that it worked is on the door of these capsules were exploding bolts. And they would explode. The door, because of the pressure on the inside, would blow off and the astronauts could get out. Well, he landed in the Atlantic Ocean. And before the helicopter could get down and grab a hold of his capsule... The door, the bolts exploded and the door popped off and water started to get on the inside. The capsule actually sunk all the way to the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean and it wasn't recovered until 1999. Now, Gus Grissom then uh, was almost drowned. They did save his life and they, he stood before the media and listen to what he said. I, I think I put the quote in your outline Here's what he says. When asked how he felt, he replied, well, I was what? Scared. He said it. He was the first astronaut to actually admit that he was frightened, that there was something scary about the vision or the dream that John F. Kennedy had given them. They all knew that it was dangerous. But up to this point, they had all said the same thing. The reward to mankind was worth the risk. And I think about the courage that you and I need in order to do something about the world in which we live. Look at what it said in Matthew. Remember what it said as the disciples showed up? Jesus gives his last words on planet Earth. It says they get there, they see him, they worship him, but some of them what? They doubted. They doubted. It's just a little weird in one way, doesn't it? That they saw Jesus rise from the dead and they saw all the different things that he had done, but as he's getting ready to ascend into heaven, it says that some of them, some of them doubt. And yet, you probably understand that, don't you? I mean, there's probably been times in your life when you've doubted. I know there has been in mine. The courage that it takes to to love God, to turn away from the desires of my skin, to turn away from the beliefs and the desires of a world, a culture that leads to inequality and violence and anger and to love God. I remember when I was in college, I played basketball and I have a bad back, got hurt, so I actually ended up playing at two different colleges. And what that meant was, is that in both cases, the first three to six months, I was a Christ follower at the time, and the first three to six months that I arrived, it took great courage to love God, because I always had to to identify myself as a Christ follower. And what I mean by that is I had to choose to love God. You know, you get invited to be a part of those things where there are groups of people who go out and do things that they have seen destroy other people, but they didn't think it would destroy them. Be involved in relationships that had destroyed other folks, kept other folks from the dreams that they had, but they didn't believe that it would destroy them. So you're invited to be a part of those things, but to be a part of those things is not to love God or really even to love people. And so you have to define yourself. But courage is not not being pious. See, because that's what some of us do sometimes. Is that when we are tempted to do, first of all, what our skin desires. The pleasure to do something. And not only what our skin desires, but what our culture is inviting us into. Sometimes, rather than courage, we have piety. Kind of puff ourselves up. We make ourselves better than those around us. We become super spiritual. Super knowledgeable. Every step that we take is just whoo, right? But that's not courage. Courage is not looking down. Courage is not judging those around you. Courage is simply loving God. And I have to tell you, in those situations, there's doubt. At least for me, there was there's a risk involved. I was a part of a basketball team, 12 to 15 guys. I mean, what if, what if they didn't throw me the ball in the next game? I mean, we traveled together. We had the, the athletic dorm together, practiced together. We did all these things together. And what if I was an outcast? And what if the next several years I had to spend them separated uh, relationally from those guys? What if they didn't include me as part of the team? Or There's a risk. Well, I don't, I don't want that. You, you've probably had that same doubt at work. What, what's your supervisor going to do? How are your co-workers going to respond? Maybe some of you even experienced that on this world, baptism day. Where it's like, I don't know if mom and dad will understand me getting baptized. And there is this temptation to do what? To not have courage. It's to be controlled by your fear. It's to go along but not really be along. It's to procrastinate and put it off. It's to become pious and look down. But what it really calls for is Courage. And that's what the disciples have. If you'll notice that scripture and you read the book of Acts, it doesn't say that their doubt dissipated. But what it does say is that their belief marched them forward. I may doubt, but I will operate and make decisions based upon what I believe, not upon what I Feel because I want to impact the world. I want to see violence ended. I want to see the hungry fed. I want to see our families restored. And ultimately, I want to see people experience the forgiveness that only God can give and eternal life with Him. And in order to do that, we must have courage. <clears throat> A courage that's willing to take to take risk. <clears throat> Sometimes it takes that courage just to stand up to your teenager, doesn't it? How are they going to respond? What are they going to think? To challenge a friend. You know, as a pastor, you know, I, I, I don't know if you know this or not, but people come to church and they bring their people-ness. Did you know that? What I mean by that is that people bring their pain-in-the-buttness with them to church. I mean, we all do. We're all just people, and, and so we, we, we bring that with us. And, 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 and sometimes uh, people, people leave. They give up. They surrender. They, they get mad about something, and they say things. You know, a lot of times when people leave, they don't leave kindly. They leave angrily. They, they leave mad. And so they'll say things, and um, they'll talk about things. And, and in those moments, what I want to do is I want to get even. I want to stand, and I want to say, let me, let me tell you what, what, what happened. Let me tell you what really surrounded that situation. Let me tell you what was really going on. Let me tell you how all of this happened because that's what I want to do. I don't want to be hurt. I I, I don't want to be thought in a way that I don't feel is true. So I I want to to, uh, assess the penalty myself. But, you know, the Scripture says that I'm supposed to allow Jesus to do that that I'm not supposed to go after revenge, that I'm supposed to trust Christ to fight those battles for me. But I'm kind of like the disciples. I sometimes doubt. You probably do, too. And it's in those moments that we either have courage or we don't. And it is the challenge to me and it's the challenge to you that our courage comes from a desire to bring about change in this world. That you can do, and I can do more than just show up at a ball game. As important as that might be, if I'll allow and go after something bigger, dream bigger. I I like what the scripture says in Matthew chapter five. It says, God blesses those who work for peace. You know what the word bless means? Make happy. Make happy. How many of you would like to be happy? Ooh, let, let, let's just, why don't you put on your happy face? All right, look at the person beside you and just be happy. Smile. Right? Well, that, that's what scripture says God makes happy those who work for peace, those who don't gossip. Those who don't get revenge. Those who don't necessarily try to explain themselves. Those who don't try to make sure everybody knows why they did what they did. For they will be called the children of God. God makes happy those who are persecuted for doing right. Now understand what persecution is. It says persecuted for doing right. That does not mean that if you get pulled over by a police officer for speeding, that you are being persecuted. All right? No, you were speeding. Doesn't mean that if you buy a house that you can't afford and you're struggling financially that you are being persecuted. Okay, that's not what that's not what it means. For the kingdom of heaven is theirs. God makes happy when you when people mock you, persecute you, lie about you, say all sorts of evil things against you because you are my followers. Be, be what? Yeah, be happy. About it, be very what? Yeah, very glad. I'm liking this. All right, God will make you happy. Be happy, not just be happy. Be very glad. Be very glad. Look what it says. We're gonna keep going for a great what? Woo! A reward, a great reward awaits who? You. Ho, ho, ho right? Aren't you glad you came to church? Awaits you in what? Heaven. That seems like a long way away, right? I mean, when I'm reading that, I mean, if I'm honest with you, I'm like, woohoo. and then heaven? I mean, I'm all for heaven when I die. You know, I love that the Bible is, 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 is real here. Now, there are other places in Scripture that it says, the Lord is my shepherd. I have everything that I need. God promises to take care of us while we're here on planet Earth. He even says he'll give us an abundant life. But what God's been challenging me, and I want to challenge you in, is will you love him just as passionately if your reward is not until heaven? Will you remain just as committed if your reward is not until heaven? Will you live with the same kind of generosity if your reward is not until heaven? He says, remember, saints of old were persecuted as well. When I get discouraged and and, and feel like not moving forward in courage, I get discouraged. In other words, courage comes out of me. And I want to surrender or, or give up or just sit around and be depressed. Right? Don't you love the way that depression, and I'm not talking about uh, a, a physical diagnosis. I'm just talking about, don't you just love the fact that if you, you, depression can give you a reason to disengage? What's wrong? I'm just discouraged. Right? When, when I feel like that, I'm reminded of Hebrews chapter 12. It says, we are encompassed about by such a great cloud of witness, witnesses. In other words, and it's the idea of the Roman Colosseum. And in the Roman Colosseum, there would be, you know, thousands upon thousands of people in the stands. And then you would have the big dudes with the muscles. And you would have the lions and the bears. And do you know who they would be taking on? The Christians. Now, in the stands, there would be, you know, salt and peppered through the stands would be some other believers. And historians tell us that as the bear and the lion and the big Hercules dude would take on the Christians is that these other Christians in the stands would stand up and they would say, hey, run the race. Be faithful. Don't give up. God with you. And the Bible says that we, you and I, as we run this race here on planet Earth, as we go after being what God created us to be, to impact this world in an incredible way, it, that the great saints of the past, and I don't know who your heroes are, maybe Moses, Adam, maybe Ruth or Esther, maybe a grandma or a grandpa, that they stand And they remind you and they remind me, don't give up at work. Don't give up in your family. Don't surrender to the violence in our world. Don't surrender to the fear of the terrorist. Don't surrender to the poverty that surrounds you. No, you continue to run with courage. You continue to fight with passion. You continue to believe that the all-powerful God can do all things through somebody just like you and me. That we do not have to surrender. Courage. Now, I try to, I always bring that down to when I was playing basketball. And we'd play in one of these, you know, stadium type places. And, and my mom and dad would always be there in high school. And my mom was more quiet. She'd cheer us on. But my dad would get as close to the court as he could. And he'd yell at the referees. I mean, yell at them. He'd tell them how pitiful they were. How horrible of a job they were doing. And my dad wore false teeth. So occasionally his teeth would end out on the court, okay? Now, I was never embarrassed because my dad was standing for me. My dad was fighting for me. My dad's belief was in me. And I am reminded of that, is that we have this great cloud of witnesses that is standing for you. That is fighting for you, that is reminding you on your behalf. I am with you. I will fight with you. I will stand with you. I will encourage you. I will inspire you. I will be there with you. You are not alone. To act with courage and be willing to take those risks. And then there's a second thing. We're almost finished. Well, we're, we're not almost finished, but. I'm almost finished. Number two. We're almost out of time. A public commitment to the vision. Uh, On uh, April the 9th, 1959, that's when they announced these seven Mercury astronauts publicly. And we got pumped up as Americans. They became famous. They were heroes. All kinds of amazing things. But before they were announced, there was a process. Dwight D. Eisenhower was president, and I think I put it in your outline. But you couldn't weigh more than 180 pounds. You couldn't be taller than five feet 11 inches. You had to have a college or bachelor's degree, and you had to have over 1,500 hours of flying time, and you couldn't be older than the age of 40. And then they took these men that qualified as a result of those things, and it says they gave them tests, and the test included hours on the treadmill. Tilt tables, submerging your feet in ice water. I don't know why, but you had to do that. Three doses of castor oil and five enemas. (laughs) So that narrowed them down to 18. I'm not doing that. And out of those 18, they picked seven. Now, this great vision that God has given us to impact the world around us, it includes baptism. No enemas, thank goodness. I might be in a different profession if that were the case. But if you look with me in verse 19, he says, baptizing, baptismo, dunking, dunking them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, if you were here last week, I think it was, we looked at Luke chapter 3 and verse 3, and remember what it said? It said that John went from place to place baptizing people to show their repentance In other words, to identify themselves as. Baptism, yes, it paints a picture of the resurrection. It tells the story of your changed life. But baptism, more than anything else, identifies you as a Christ follower. When Gus Grissom had the door pop off, He said it was an accident, that it just happened. He was just sitting there in the capsule. But that's not what the media said. The media said that he was overcome with claustrophobia, that he became afraid, that his fear caused him to explode the bolts early, and that he was the cause for sinking that capsule. They said that he had let us down as Americans, that he wasn't a man of courage, You shouldn't be one of the Mercury astronauts. Now that may seem unfair to you. But the day that Gus Grissom allowed them to identify him as an astronaut. The day that he allowed them to place him on the stage and be introduced as an astronaut. He positioned himself to be criticized. He positioned himself to be looked at. And I believe that that is why some of us struggle to get baptized. Because you know. You know that to be baptized is to identify yourself as a Christ follower. And you know as a result of that what some people will then expect. You know the criticism that will come. And you call yourself a Christian? Can't believe you would do that. Can't believe you must be a hypocrite. Right? We, we, we know. And it is that moment. And it is that fear that sometimes keeps us from being obedient in this, in this area. But I, I want to challenge you. That if you're here and you have yet to walk into that water. It's the reason I talk about it. They don't get commissioned based on baptisms. God doesn't say, hey, you're going to get a bigger, you know, mansion in heaven if you can get just a few more baptized. No, the reason that we talk about it is because this world needs to be transformed. The reason we talk about it is because God is calling us to dream a big dream. And that it is through identifying ourselves in baptism, saying, I am to want you to know I'm a Christ follower. And as a Christ follower, here's what that means. You can hold me accountable and you can count on me. You can hold me accountable to love God. You can hold me accountable to turn towards him and to live a holy life. And I want you to challenge me. I want you to confront me because I want to impact this world. But you can also count on me is that I'll be there to encourage you. I'll be consistent. I'll be committed. I'll be faithful. I will be constant. And as a result, we tend to shy away. And I just want you to understand, had there not been seven men who knew there would be criticism, and yet they stepped forward and said, we will go after the dream that our president has given us, we would never reach the moon. And until there are those who say they are Christ followers, who are willing to walk into that water. And knowing that they are not perfect, just as those astronauts knew that they were just men, they were not gods, they could make mistakes, and they could even be afraid. Until you and I are willing to position ourselves in a place where criticism may come and persecution may come, but we will not back down from the reality that I am a Christ follower. I will publicly identify myself public commitment to the vision, courage. And then last the last thing is a willingness to sacrifice, right? President Kennedy said that. What do I sacrifice for? The vision, the going to the moon and the team, the astronauts and the other folks who work at NASA. Kennedy told us, and really there are two areas in which we have to sacrifice, humility and generosity, right? Kennedy told us it was going to cost a lot to go to the moon. During the Apollo missions, NASA was 5.5% of the U.S. budget. Today, it's 0.5%. So if you want to know why we haven't gone to the moon, it's because of money. And if you want to know why we beat the Russians to the moon, it's because of money. The, the, there were between 400 and 500,000 people that were on NASA's payroll during the Apollo missions. You can see, I put it there in your outline, it cost $23 billion for those astronauts to walk on the moon. Was it worth it? Well, they tell us that for every dollar NASA spent during that time period, that $14 was put into the American economy. They tell us that there were 6,300 different inventions that you and I use every day that are the result Of the space race. Of course, we don't know the impact that it had on the fact that we never went to war with Russia. I was looking at an article that gave some of the inventions. You know, the computer microchip, the cordless uh, tools, the ear thermometer, freeze-dried food, insulation, invisible braces. If you got those little invisible braces, you can thank Neil Armstrong for that. Now, think about it. You remember what was going on in the world at that time? Vietnam War. Racial tension. Disease. The fear of Russia. Wouldn't it have been so easy for Americans at that time to have said, why in the world would we go to the moon with so much happening on this planet? It's because they believed for something greater, and they were willing to sacrifice for that. And not only were they willing to sacrifice their generosity, the guys had to be teammates. They had to be humble. They had to be there to support one another, to encourage one another, to stand in for one another, to help one another. And there is incredible stories about how they did that very thing. You know, God calls us to the same thing, to sacrifice. We all want the world to be changed. Just be nice if somebody else would do it. We all want our kids and grandkids to grow up in a world that knows peace, but be nice to somebody else, do it. It's not that it can't be done. It's just that often the price is higher than I'm or you're willing to pay. Whether it be our finances or our time or our gifts or our ability or just our humility to submit ourselves to one another. To encourage and stand in for one another. You know, they picked the seven best. That's what they said. They were looking for the seven best pilots, test pilots. The seven most, the bravest men. Most fit men. But when Jesus picked his apostles, he did it differently. Look look what the scripture says in Acts chapter 4, verse 13. This is after Jesus went to heaven. This is as these men... We're going after changing the world. And here, can I add something to you? Listen, there were a hundred folks in the upper room. And just a couple of decades later, this Christianity that was seen as a cult was the national religion of the world's strongest power, the Roman government. Now, I'm not saying that that's what we're going after, but what I am saying is you, you see the impact of these men and women, and young people. Listen to what it says after some of them were um, persecuted. It says the members of the council, those who had arrested Peter and John, they were amazed when they saw the boldness passion the confidence of Peter and John for they could see that they were ordinary men not supermen not the best men not the strongest men not the smartest men they were ordinary men with no special training in the scriptures but they also recognized them as men who had been with Jesus I read that and I am inspired because it brings me to the realization that my ability to impact this world is not limited by my strength nor by my intellect nor by my bank account it is only limited by my passion my boldness my courage my commitment and my willing to sacrifice and if you and I are willing to do that for which God has called us we can impact this world we can make a difference our kids can grow up in a world that's not filled with anxiety, but instead, peace and joy. So, I hope, I challenge, let's do it. Let's do it. it. Starts with me and you. Let's bow our heads. Father, I thank you. I thank you for the fact that you care about our hurting world and that just average, normal people like you have created here in potential church can do something. I pray that we will. I pray that our courage will overcome our fear. I pray that our commitment will overcome our doubt. And I pray that our sacrifice would overcome our selfishness. And that you would be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. Can you give God a hand?